Thank you, Alex, for leading us in uh, worship thus far, for using the songs and the music as a tool for, um, to bring our hearts and minds to a state where we can be receptive uh, to the Word of God. That's how God works, doesn't it? He uses people in our lives, He uses things that we hear, He lose, uses things that we read to somehow communicate with us and bring a message to us uh, that He wants us to hear. And uh, this happened to me when yesterday afternoon when I was taking a break from my preparation, and I thought it might be a fine idea to open the book called The Expository Genius of uh, John Calvin by Steve Lawson that I purchased last year. I haven't read it since I bought it. I thought, wow, I might get a few tips on how to be an expository genius like John Calvin and come and stand before you. And please allow me to read from the opening paragraph of the preface of this book. And the preface is titled, Standing on Holy Ground. And I quote, To step into the pulpit is to enter on holy ground. To stand behind an open Bible demands no trifling with sacred things. To be a spokesman for God requires utmost concern and care in handling and proclaiming the word. Rightly does scripture warn, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, James 3.1, unquote. That's a kick in the teeth. What a fine idea indeed to open that book to that very portion and read those lines and needless to say I didn't get very much, very much further in that book God used that to convict my own heart about my own unworthiness in standing before you this morning because the themes that I wish to speak on are the themes that I have been struggling with in my own life for the past few months and I was confronted by my own inadequacy because I was wondering am I a hypocrite that I would stand here and exhort you with something that I myself am struggling with. And then, you know, it felt like as I was writing, I was planting all these landmines. And then I was stepping on them and detonating them myself. It wasn't a good feeling. But around that time, our dear brother Steve, another Steve, and I thank him for that, he sent me a word of encouragement, and I'd like to read that to you as well. And this is what he said. And I quote, what makes a powerful sermon, in my eyes, is that the preacher is battling or has battled the very thing he is preaching. When the Lord allows the very thing we're going to speak on be brought to to life in our own lives, then that to me is the foundation for a powerful message that has changed your life and therefore will be able to change the lives of those who are listening. Unquote. I found that very encouraging, I found that very uplifting. I don't know how powerful this message will be, and I don't know how God will use it to change your life, or if He will at all, but I do know that through the study, He has shown a light in my own heart to the places that I thought were fine, but they weren't. And I hope that He will do the same for you right now, so I ask that you will join me in a word of prayer. Almighty God, speak to us as only you can. May your word be a deafening megaphone 
that speaks your truth into our hearts. May we hear your spirit say, Thus saith the Lord, and may we be convicted to obey. Arrest us with your grace. Captivate us with your holiness so that we may be motivated to live for your glory. And we ask all this with the confident expectation because we are asking to be conformed to the image of your Son. And we know that you will answer because we are asking according to your will and because it is in the, in the glorious name of Jesus that we ask. Amen. In case you didn't already know, I'm in the middle of a series called What Christians Pursue. And it has been my objective and endeavor to identify the attitudes and characteristics that define true Christians. Now, why do we need to do that? We need to do that so that we who are Christians can continuously evaluate whether we match up to the standard that is in Scripture that we ought to match up to. And so... Uh, I started uh, this series a while ago, but the, the, the topic that we want to be uh, speaking on right now um, is called Unity of the Spirit. And we want to be uh, listening to Unity because it's something that we strive for continually. As Christians, uh, as people who aren't Christians, uh, we love to be united. We want to be united. There is unity in numbers. There is uh, some hope in unity. There is strength that we get. So we like to be united. It's not wrong to be united. It's not wrong to seek unity. However, the criteria for unity are important. Why are we seeking to be united? On what basis are we being united? Are we being united because we follow the same footy team? Are we being united because we like what we eat for breakfast? What is our basis for unity? And so, we, we wanted to study about the unity of the Spirit, because that is what unity for a Christian is and ought to be. We want to, we want to understand that the basis for our unity, the motivation for our unity, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 says, those whom he foreknew, he being God, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Why did he predestine them? To what did he predestine them? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God wants people to be conformed, all of humanity, God wants all of humanity to be conformed to his Son, Jesus Christ. And so if each one of us wants that, if each one of us wants to be conformed, then all of us will be united in our motivation. And then hopefully, all of us will agree on what it means to be united and be conformed to the image of His Son. And then that will be wonderful. We'll all live happily ever after. And so, we looked at the unity of the Spirit. We started this uh, in, um, in October last time. And uh, we looked at Ephesians 4. And we looked at verses 1 to 6. Sorry, I'll go back. I don't know if you can read that, but you can either turn there or, or follow with me as I read along. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How should you walk? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And why should you do that? Because there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. A lot of ones in there giving us the basis for unity of the spirit. Now, we looked at the text and we divided it into three sections. Uh, we said we w- would look at the means of unity, what is the source of the unity, and then we looked at the motivation for unity, where does it come, you know, why should we be united, what's in it for us. And uh, just so that everyone gets on the same page, I just want to do a brief u- recap on what are the means, first, of unity. What is the source? The source is the objective truth of God. That's how we come to know what he wants from us. We come to know from his word. The source is the objective truth of God. What, uh, what else do we learn from there? It involves walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, that, there's a term worthy. That term worthy has a connotation of value or weight. So basically, he's saying you match up the weight of your calling with the weight of your walk. Let your conduct have the same weight as the weight of your calling. What is, the, uh, what is the calling? The calling is an invitation. What is the invitation to? It is an invitation to salvation and godliness. Very heavy weight. So if you, if you have received the call to salvation and godliness, then let your lifestyle have the same weight as that call to salvation. Every one of us has got the same call. Every one of us has the same invitation. It's not a different invitation for you as it is for me. We are called to the same objective. And that should be the source, or one of the sources, of our unity. So the unity is twofold. One is God calls us. And number two is we respond in obedience. So there's a twofold Uh, basis for our unity, we all have heard God calling us and we have all responded to God in in obedience and therefore we are united. Next, we looked at the motivation for unity. Why? What's in it for us? Why should we be united? Why should we bother? And verses 4 to 6 give us seven motivations for unity. We go through them quickly. The invitation of God calls us to one body. Everyone who is a believer is part of the body of Christ. So we are united by our affiliation. Second, we have the same spirit. The spirit calls us and the spirit dwells in us. So we are, we are united by the infusion of the spirit within us. The spirit calls us to the same hope. One day we will be like Christ. So we are united by our anticipation. We are united uh, by the same Lord, Jesus Christ, so we, he is our master, so we are obliged to him, we are obligated, we are united by our obligation. We have one faith, one set of doctrines, so we are united by what we confess, we are united by our confession, we are united by our baptism, we are united by the Lord who created us, and so therefore we are united at the point of our conception. Seven reasons, seven motivations, and these are all about Christ. It is the body of Christ. We are united by being a part of that body. We are, we, are, we, are body, we are united by the Spirit that testifies that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
We are united by the same master, Jesus Christ. We are united by baptism into the name of Jesus Christ. We are baptized into, the, into Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father. So seven reasons that make, should make it very clear as to what the basis of our unity is. It cannot be anything other than Christ. And so those who are outside of Christ, we want to be very careful about unite or how we... we Unity doesn't mean we don't be friends with anyone. But when you agree that something is true, when you agree that the basis of truth, the basis of reality is Christ and Christ alone and everything else that comes with Him, that causes a lot of offense to people. But we are not here to offend. We are here to basically assert that Jesus is the Son of God and whoever affirms that, we welcome them with open arms. So the means are determined by God, the, motiva- the motivation is determined by Him, and as we will see today, the method also is determined by Him. What's the method? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How do we do that, Paul? What do you want us to do? And Paul says, hang on, the walking worthy is not about actions. It's not about doing things. The worthy walk is about an attitude. It's about being a certain way. And so what kind of attitudes are we talking about? And we see these in verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. And how do, how do we do that? Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's the method. Now, they all seem synonymous. They seem like they're talking about the same thing. You know, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. It pretty much sounds like the same thing. And yes, there are overlaps. But what we see here is a beautiful progression from humility to gentleness to tolerance to patience to love to unity. And one thing builds, they're like building blocks. And they form the foundation upon which we can all be united Why is it not about actions? Why is it about attitudes? With an action, it's external. I can do something and fool you into thinking that I'm a certain way. But if it's a question of attitudes, you can't fool people about your attitude. You can't fool people into thinking you're humble. I may, I may preach a ripper of a sermon and someone comes up to me and, they, and you're all choked up and you're crying and you can oh, thank you so much for a wonderful sermon. I say, yeah, you know, it's just how humble I am. It doesn't work that way. It's not primarily about what you do. It's about who you are inside. And so the worthy walk, the method, is not really about doing a checklist and saying, this, 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 yep, I'm done. It's about just being internalizing these truths of God and being in the way and conforming uh, to, his, to His will. How, how can we do this? Can anyone do this? Love, joy, peace, faithfulness? You can't. Because these are fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are not attitudes that a normal person in in a regular lifestyle can exhibit because these are not normal to the human condition. It is only when God calls us and He puts His Spirit in us that we are able to display these attitudes that God requires us to display in our everyday lives. 
And so exhibiting these attitudes proves, in a sense, that we have been called. This goes to show that Christian unity is not something that can be drummed up by people. It's something that God enables us to do as we walk in faith. So how does it begin? So it's about all humility and gentleness. All means total. All. Complete. Utter. Sheer. Full on. It's not about a half-hearted attempt. It's genuine. It's sincere. It is complete. All humility. What do we mean by humility? Well, the word combines two ideas. In Greek, often you have words that are combination. In English, we have the same thing. But the, the word for humility has two ideas. It has one idea, which means low-lying. And the other idea is to think. So you put those two ideas of low-lying and thinking together, and you have an idea which talks about lowliness, lowliness of mind. To think lowly of yourself. This does not mean to think less of yourself, as C.S. Lewis said. It's to think of yourselves less. And so it's not that you think, oh, I'm just so low, oh my gosh, oh, maybe everyone's... No, it's just thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. Is that how you see others? Do you think of yourself less? Is your motivation to put others before self? If our, if our motivation is to be like Christ, then we need to learn from Christ what it means to be humble. Though he was himself in the very form God, he did not consider itself consider it robbery to somehow be equal to God, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a man, and being in that form, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, which we've just been talking about. That is humility, because it's done out of love. There's a sacrifice involved. Is that what our humility looks like? Is our humility modeled after Christ? Let's be clear, a lot of people are humble without knowing Christ. But the humility that Christ portrays and models for us, are we following that? What, is hu what does humility have to do with unity? Well, you can't be united to the people of God if you consider yourselves better than them. Can you? I mean, that's duh. We're always talking about our forever family. How does... Is that just talk? Are we praying for our forever family during the week? Is our forever family on our mind? Are we praying for people? Do we know what their needs are to even pray for them? This is not just about giving your seat up on the bus for someone. It's, it's about uh, investing spiritually in the lives of people. I mean, when you pray for someone, um, you want to go and ask them, you know, how are you going? When you pray for someone, you'll naturally go over and say, you know, how are you doing? Are you well? Because you want to know whether God is answering your prayers 
on their behalf? Are we concerned about the physical and spiritual well-being of others? Why is humility the first step towards unity? Because humility is all about knowing who you really are. Spurgeon says, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. The humble man doesn't think, oh, you know, actually I'm, I'm brilliant, I'm fantastic, but I think I'll just lower my estimation so that I can, you know, just blend in. The humble man says, no, there is nothing good in me. And how do we know that? The publican. Jesus was talking about the publican. And the publican says, and, the, and the, the word says, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. There's a Pharisee who's standing there and says, Oh Lord, I thank you, I give my tithes and I am so good and thank you, I'm not like that publican. And that guy just can't even lift his eyes up. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows who he is. And what does Jesus say about him? I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who hum- humbles himself will also will be exalted. Luke 18. Now, why did Jesus say this parable anyway? Verse 9 says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. I never read that before actually. Jesus spoke to that because he knew that there were people in the crowd who considered themselves too good and they looked down on other people and he spoke this parable just so that people would understand you really need to know who you are before you can be humble. The humble individual is humble because they know who they are. Why is that? Because they don't see themselves as how other people see them. They see themselves as God sees them. Do you know how God sees you? Humility is a characteristic of godliness because it sees with God's eyes. And only those who are called can see with God's eyes. To be aware of God is to be self-aware. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah sees God. What's his reaction? Woe is me. Woe is me. You see God, you think he's going to be happy, right? No, woe is me for I am ruined. I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. Why are you feeling that way, Isaiah? For my eyes have seen the king. Is that the reaction you feel? Woe is me. To see God is to see his glory and his awesomeness. And that means to see your own sinfulness and unworthiness. You cannot help but compare whose presence am I standing in? Who is this God? When God confronts us, we really know who we are. And that is cause for great humility. 
that's when we can begin to obey Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another. And how should you regard one another? As being more important than yourself. When was the last time you considered someone as being more important than yourself? When was the last time? The attitude of humility then is a mental attitude of lowliness. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that to be humble means to have low self-esteem. You are made in the image of Almighty God. You have no reason to suffer from low self-esteem. Nobody has any right to feel low self-esteem if they know that they are created in the image of Almighty God. All I'm saying is that humility is about recognizing. When you stand in front of God and you see the image that you were made in and you realize how far you have fallen and you realize that God loves you and that He gives His Son for you and that He wants to have fellowship with you, then you understand why? Why me? There can be no room for arrogance or pride because we know our standing before God and because we know our standing, we know that we are debtors. We owe big time. And because we owe, there is no way that we can have a condescending or prideful attitude towards anyone. Pride is a lifelong problem, which means humility is a lifelong challenge. And the moment we say, yep, I got it, you've lost it. We must constantly evaluate our state of humility if we are to remain united. Moving on to the second attitude, all gentleness. With all humility and gentleness. What is gentleness? Gentleness or meekness uh, describes the quality of not being too impressed with yourself. It suggests having one's emotions under control and is the opposite of self-assertion, rudeness and harshness. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not being mealy-mouthed and sitting in a corner and saying, woe is me, no, we, meekness knows the right time to stand up and say, no, no, I'm not happy with this. Meekness knows the right time and the right way in which to confront something that is wrong. And if you're looking for an example of meekness again, look at Christ. Matthew 11:29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why should we learn from you, Lord? For I am meek and gentle in heart. We live in a world that is massive on asserting rights. You've got human rights, you've got animal rights, you've got wedding rights, you've got all sorts of rights. And most of the time they're wrong. But, 
not saying that we shouldn't assert our rights or that it's somehow wrong to be assertive about what God has given you. I'm not saying that. But what the Lord wants us to know is that there are times that even when it would be right for you to assert your rights, don't retaliate. When you have every right to be indignant, don't be. This is not to say that we can't seek justice, but we are to seek it without a revengeful or a malicious mentality. How can we learn? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Does that seem fair to you? Jesus Christ, who is God in person, now suddenly the Father says, I think you need to do this. I say, hey, hey, hang on, man. I'm, I'm king. I'm king of, I made this. Why should I die for a creature that I've made? No, but he doesn't say that. He does not assert his rights. Instead, he dies the most torturous death ever known to man. This is a a non-retaliating mentality because it is controlled by the Holy Spirit. It is a spirit that does not feel the need to defend itself all the time. And again, how do we know that? 1 Peter 2.3, the example of Christ, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. And how was he able to do that? By entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. If we want to be meek, as scripture commands us to, we need to know who God is. Because when we know God and we know that He is able to take care of any situation, then we don't feel the need to always defend ourselves. It's in His hands. He's going to take care of it. What's your natural response when someone wrongs you or maligns you or mistreats you, what are the first words that come out of your mouth? What are the first thoughts that come into your mind? John Edie, in his uh, commentary to the Ephesians, says that this attitude, quote, is meekness of spirit in all relations, both toward God and toward man which never rises in insubordination against God, nor in resentment against man. It is not merely that meekness which is not provoked and angered by the reception of injury, but that entire subduedness of temperament which strives to be in harmony with God's will, whatever it be. And in reference to men, it thinks with candor, it suffers in self-composure, and speaks in the soft answer that turns away wrath. Unquote. That's meekness. That's what produces unity, lowliness of mind, and a non-retaliating spirit. What else? With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Patience uh, is an interesting word. Again, it's it's made up of two... It's a compound word. It's made up of two words. And one idea has the idea of long, sustained. 
And the other idea is the idea of temper or passion. So to be patient, as per the word, is to be long-tempered, as opposed to being short-tempered. And um, it's, it's, it's to be able to hold, it's to have a long fuse. It's to be able to hold out against the provocation for a very long time. William Barclay says it is the ability not to lose patience when people are foolish. Somehow we think, you know, patience is to be only shown to people who are nice. You know, I'll be patient with you because, you know, you're, you understand, you're reasonable. No, no, no. It is the ability not to lose patience when people are foolish, not to grow irritable when they seem unteachable. It is the ability to accept the folly, the perversity, the blindness, the ingratitude of men, and still to remain gracious and still to toil on. I can't do that. But the Lord in me can. James Montgomery Boyce tells the story of a man who, he, he was trying to be a bit humble, and he wanted to have a show of sort of piety. And so he goes to this preacher and he says, Brother, I need you to pray for me so I can be patient. And he says, Yes, sure, I'll pray for you. And he says, Lord, please send tribulation on this brother. And he says, No, 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 I, you didn't hear me. I didn't ask for tribulation, I asked to be for patience. And he says, Haven't you read Romans 5.3? What does Romans 5.3 say? And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Are we, are we happy to learn patience that way? What a massive challenge. That the, thing, that the, the trials God sends us are intended to work in us Patience. And it's so hard because, you know, we, we, we like to, I mean, we, we want to be able to plan our lives out. I like planning my life out. I know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to, what I'm going to do now. And this is, and I prepare for it. I budget for it. I, I, I love it. In my work, that's my, one of my responsibilities. I know what fits in and how to give people what work and what time they're going to take and just neatly sort of lay it out and go do it and bring the big bucks in. But life's not like that. How do we respond to the circumstances and situations that life throws up in our way that we say, oh my gosh, this is going to throw out everything? How do we respond? This is why humility and patience are connected because when we know who God is, when we know who we are, when we know our standing before Him, we know His character, we know that He is sovereign, we know that He is in control, then we can say, fine. If that's what you want, Lord. I, I put a lot of effort into this. And it was going to be fantastic. Hey, but you know better. To be patient is to know that God knows what He's doing. To be patient is to recognize that you cannot provide for yourself the way God can. To be patient is to trust in God and not in yourself. 
Is this our motivation for patience? That we trust in God. And what do you know God, right? If you know God, and you believe in Christ, and you believe that Christ died for you, and you know that Christ died for your sin, do you know how patient God is with you? Have you any idea how long-suffering, how long His fuse is that He does not consume you? And if you have some inkling of how long-suffering God is towards you, how dare you not show that same grace and patience towards someone else? Paul is exhorting us to patience that is modeled not after men, not after some really nice, humble, patient guy, but after God Himself. Because God, His heart is long-suffering. He waits. Yes, a time will come when that fuse will blow. Yes, it will. But He waits. God is waiting right now. Is there some... I mean... God is waiting for us to change. He's waiting us to He's given the call. He's waiting for us to pick up the phone and say, Yes, Lord, I obey. Patience is followed closely by tolerance or forbearance. It means to practice restraint under provocation. Literally to hold oneself up. You are tolerant doesn't mean you do what you want to do and I do what I want to do. That's not, that's not really the idea. The idea is to be able to hold yourself up against sustained provocation. The Christian is one who battles within themselves to shut up. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond to this provocation. I'm going to demonstrate the love of Christ and I make a concerted effort. Yes, I may have all sorts of thoughts inside me, but I don't let it come out. One commentator puts it like this, and I quote, Paul encourages the saints to make allowance for the faults and failures of others, of differing personalities, abilities, and temperaments. Forbearance is not a question of maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment but a spirit-empowered positive love to those who irritate, disturb, or embarrass you, and that's not a natural but a supernatural response. Unquote. So it's love, actually. You can have all that seething inside, but then you say, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. How much has Christ loved me? How much has Christ forgiven me? How much... Has He blessed me? Now let me respond. This is not just external tolerance. It is an attitude that comes from within and it comes in love. What kind of love are we talking about? Agape love. Unconditional, sacrificial, supernatural. It is the quality of love that characterizes God Himself. God wants you to love the way He loves. Someone has defined it as empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
activated by a personal choice of our will, is not based on our feelings towards the object, and is manifested by specific actions, especially as summarized in 1 Corinthians 13. We know all about love from there. This is not romance. This is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. This is not lust. This is sacrificial, giving, love that just seeks the highest good for the other person. Is that the love that characterizes us? Remember what Jesus said? John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. The model for love is the love that Christ showed. That you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Why? By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If we want to be a church that is you know, missional, if we want to be a church that is uh, evangelistic, if we want to take the love of Jesus to the community, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We can have instep, and we can have witnessing to your world, and we can have developing a heart for missions, and we can fly in people from all around the world to speak to us, but we don't have the love of Christ in our hearts. It's pointless. Love gives efficacy to evangelism. If we're not practicing that sort of love, we need to have that sort of love that is characterized by a long fuse and great restraint. But there's more, as there always is. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, being diligent, the word in English might give you the idea of commitment. And there is an idea of commitment, but actually, it's the word that, that signifies great urgency. Energy, passion. Be, be energetic. Be intensely passionate. It's not just sit down and... I saw, I saw um, uh, one of these little YouTube... Not YouTube, um, a meme of, of, of JPEG, and it says... Um, whenever the urge comes upon me to exercise, I just lie down till it passes. And that's, that's not the kind of urge and urgency that this is talking about. This is talking about if you have that urge, preserve it, get out, do something. Be diligent. Be diligent about what? About preserving unity. What does unity mean? It's about, it's about unanimity. Oneness. It describes a state of being in harmony and accord. Unity of the Spirit means to be in sync with the Spirit. It's not about walking in step with people. It's about walking in step with the Spirit of God. Toza has a wonderful quote. Has it ever occurred to you, has it ever occurred to you, that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are tuned automatically to each other? 
they are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each individually must bow. Unity of the Spirit is being in harmony, in tune with the same standard. God's standard. And what is God's standard? His Son. The perfect man. We don't tune ourselves to each other so that we can get on the same frequency. We tune ourselves to Christ so we can be on His frequency. And when we are on His frequency, all of us are on the same frequency. If we sing, we sing in the key of Christ. He sets the calibration. He sets the standard of love, of humility, of tolerance, of patience, of long-suffering. And if we calibrate our lives to, the calibrate, to, to, the, to, the, to His character, if we walk according to the calling with which He has called us, then we will walk in unity. And, and just note, this doesn't say we are called to create unity. It says we are called to preserve unity. It's not something we create, it's something God creates, but we are, we are called to guard it. That's the, that's the meaning of that word preserve, to guard, to protect. What does the preservation of this unity look like? It looks like a community of people who jealously guard the truth of God. Why? Because the truth of God is what first brings to our mind and opens our eyes to who He is. We guard the truth. And there is no other truth. And that's what unites us. John 17, 8. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, is praying to the Father. For I have given them what? I have given them the words. Which words? That you gave me. And they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed in you that you sent me. It is the word that starts it. It is the word that unites. It is the word that enables us to understand whether we are on the same page. The words, the teaching, the doctrine which have been passed down from Jesus to the disciples, to us, that produces the unity. And to guard the word is to preserve unity because it is the word that reveals to us where this comes from. Where is the source? What is the motivation? How do we even know that there is one body and one Father and one Lord and one this and one that? How do we even know that? It's the word. Why do you think why do you think that Satan has always pursued a relentless campaign to smear the purity and the inerrancy of the word? What does he do first? What's his, where does he for, launch his first attack? Has God said? Really? Has God said? It is, not an, it is not an attack on, on Eve, really. It's an attack on the word of God. And then what did he follow that up with? No, you will not die. Come on. 
Come on. Did God really say that? No. And what's the result? Oh, the woman you gave me, oh man, oh, she's, she's the one, she started it all. Disunity. When Satan attacks the word, he not only destroys our trust and faith in it, produces disunity. Believe me, Satan knows the value of God's word and if he didn't think it was precious, he wouldn't be attacking it with such vehemence and frequency. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I've, I have I treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to what? Your word. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to what? Your word. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation. How? According to your word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word brings, brings salvation, it brings direction, it brings strength, it brings revival. Why do you think Satan hates it so much? Because when we all are saved, and we all have that strength, and when we all are revived, and we all are refreshed, and we all are united, he hates that. Why? Why is that a problem for him? John 17, 21, and again Jesus is praying, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Christian unity is one of the greatest tools, is one of the greatest apologetics for evangelism. When we love, and when we are long-suffering, and when we are patient, and when we are gentle, like Christ was gentle, that shows the world, you have something supernatural that we can't have, you are doing something in your midst that we can't do, and that can only be done, because God has done it. There's no human way to do that. Unity of the Spirit shows the world that Jesus is the Son of God, and Satan does not want the world to know that. So his strategy is to attack the foundation of the unity, which is the truth. It's a brilliant strategy. You've got to hand it to him. Because it works. You want this church to be missional and evangelical? You want to be salt and light? Jealously preserve the unity by preserving the word. Lastly, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is pretty simple. Bond means something that holds something together. So we are meant to help keep it together. And peace has a similar connotation of bringing people together who were apart. So we are to hold this unity in the bond of peace. It is a state of calm and tranquility and harmony. And so the bond of peace is about a tranquil state that acts like a glue that holds us all together. Peace is the adhesive that holds this unity of the spirit together. Paul is saying, you know, be intensely energetic. Be passionate about safeguarding the harmony 
that the Holy Spirit creates by holding it together with peace. It is a picture of people who are passionate and who are coming together and being really energetic about this peace. They are attuned to each other because they are attuned to Christ. So that's, that's the method from walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling with a lowly mind and re- non-retaliating spirit by practicing patience and restraint and sacrificial love and being intensely energetic about protecting harmony within the community by the preservation of God's truth in a peaceful manner. That is mission impossible right there. That is just such a tall order. That is such a mountain to climb. We cannot do that. But God can. Why? Because those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. If He has called you, He will do this. Because He wants you to be conformed to the image of His Son. question is, do you want to be like Christ. He is the means, He is the motivation, He provides the method, and that's how we can all be united. I want to close with just a couple of texts. The first one is from 1 John 1, 6-7, so if you can turn there, it would be great. Otherwise, you can just uh, read off of the screen. I think, uh, I, I want us to close with this because it, I think it's pretty much like a mirror to what we've just read in Ephesians 4. And it's really beautiful. So I just want to close with this. 1 John 1, 6-7 If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if I say my piano is, is tuned to a specific tuning fork, but my notes are all out of whack, then I'm not tuned to that fork. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship, uh, that's koinonia, uh, communion, shared participation, intimacy, unity. So just bear with me, right? Work with me. If we walk in the light, how does that walk look like, John? As He Himself is in the light. In other words, as He Himself is holy. So if we conduct ourselves in the same way that He conducts Himself, what's the result? We have fellowship with one another. Do you see that? Let me summarize it like this. Christian togetherness depends on personal holiness. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. It is a tall order, it's a mountain to climb, but if we walk in the light, if we conduct ourselves in the same manner that He conducts Himself, we will be united. Let me state it another way. Ungodliness destroys Christian unity. How you walk in private impacts the life of the church. There is no private sin. 
whatever you think in your mind, whether you think that no one's looking or no one knows that you thought this because it's in your mind, if you allow it to grow and fester, believe me, it will impact the life of the body. Think about that the next time you're being tempted. Whether it's to do something wrong, whether it's to resist doing something right, sin destroys the unity of the body. But, as Alex was saying, but, 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 if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And it's beautiful. It's a guarantee. And what does this unity look like? How precious is it? We can get an idea from Psalm 133 and we'll close with this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. I mean, this is going to sound a bit strange. Coming down the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. What a picture of heavenly pleasure and godly anointing. Precious oil trickling down from head to toe, covering all of us like the fresh dew upon the mountain where God promised eternal life. That is the beauty of unity. As the body, may we pursue this unity of the Spirit. Shall we pray? Father God, you who dwell in blissful unity with the Son and the Spirit, you whose character is humility and gentleness, you who are long-suffering and forbearing in love towards us, teach us to live like you do. Show us how we can obey your command to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have called us, so that the world may see that Christ indeed is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.